Hey, I'm Amanda from Trifecta Fitness. We're proud to be Clarksville's new Get Fit headquarters. Trifecta Fitness is a state-of-the-art spin and strength training studio. Our spin studio is truly one of a kind in this area, complete with 20 state-of-the-art live fitness bikes and an incredible sound system. Our strength training is done in small groups of six or fewer, and all of our strength and spin classes are scalable for every level of experience. Come see us in the heart of Clarksville, just behind Mapco at the corner of Old Trenton Road and Wilma Rudolph Boulevard. Call us for more info at 931-542-6265 or download our Trifecta Fitness app for a full list of upcoming classes. For every veteran, there is a story. A story about a calling to serve, to fight for the freedoms of the American people. And every story has a struggle, a sacrifice, and invisible wounds. Warrior Watts programs help veterans recover from PTSD and invisible wounds through exercise, nutrition, and connecting with other veteran leaders. It is estimated that 22 veterans die each day by suicide and another 30 veterans die each day by substance abuse. These are preventable deaths. Warrior Watt is committed to fighting PTSD through fitness, nutrition, and community. opportunity to support our heroes in their time of need. Will you join us and take action? All right, all right, all right. Welcome back. Fit Nation. We are a show founded by a veteran and hosted by two veterans and a military spouse. Our mission is to get people to tell their story to the world. If you're an author, share your tips with Mr. Hutchman. If you're a musician or actor, our audience needs to know how they too can get into the business. Coaches, we love our coaches. Come on and share some of your tips with the Misfit Nation to help them become better versions of themselves. If you're a corporate leader or an entrepreneur, come on and share how you did it and how hard you have fought for success. If you are a veteran, first responder, or Gold Star family, we would love to have you come on and just share your story with the Misfit Nation. We always have time for you. If you're feeling down, alone, or starting to see the darkness, stop. Think about those who are around you. You are not alone. You will be missed. If you feel like your problems will be a burden to those in your inner circle, or are embarrassed, dial 988. If you are a veteran, take option one. We need you to keep pushing forward. Don't make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Misfit Nation. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast apps and also on our YouTube channel at the underscore Misfit Nation. Subscribe and click the bell to keep you up to date with our latest episodes and all of our news. You can also find us on Heroes Media Group and About Face Radio. Now, let's get to the show. 
right, all right, all right. Welcome to our Thursday after dinner show. It's great to have you here tonight. Thank you, Adam Baum, for passing the mic over to us. And you have a safe and, a, I guess, enjoyable night before your show tomorrow night, the, the great music you play tomorrow night on About Face Radio. Tonight, y'all, we have an award-winning journalist, writer, editor, and foreign policy and national security analyst with more than 20 years of experience in media and government. He is currently the managing editor of National Defense Magazine and author of Passport Stamps, Searching the World for a War to Call Home, a memoir of his journey to become NPR's last Kabul-based correspondent and the mental health impacts of covering conflict and tragedy. So without further ado, let's welcome Sean Carberry, professional hey, band, um, author, journalist, and foreign affairs writer. Hey, Sean, thank you for coming on. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. It's awesome to connect, and uh, we uh, we were in country a couple times, probably at the same time, just in different parts of Afghanistan, yep. probably across paths in Iraq as well. Uh, I was there early on in Iraq War, uh, 2003, 2004, so it was uh, in the pup stage of the war, I guess, uh, at that point. But you got to see a lot of things from a lot of a different angle than I did, so you were able to actually take a breath and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing, and now you were able to write your memoir, which is amazing. Well, thanks. Yeah. Um, and I did, uh, yeah, did miss you by a bit, uh, in Iraq. I got there in, uh, in 2008 and, uh, it was very different then than, uh, than what you experienced, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think important for, for all of us to continue talking about it all. Definitely. And I think, uh, as part of what your memoir show is, uh, the mental health impacts of just, you know, just for you guys covering it. A lot of people don't think about that, that, our journalists go over there. People think, oh, they're just bloodthirsty. They're doing this for money. But you guys have to see everything that we see, but not be actually protected and not have to actually be, be behind a gun, behind your either behind a lens or a microphone and trying to cover it and not get killed as well. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a vantage point and something that certainly when I got into it didn't really fully appreciate all, all the aspects of it. Um, you know, I think uh, like a lot of people, I ended up getting into it, uh, into that kind of work because of 9-11. Uh, I was early in my journalism career at that time, and I was working as a producer for an NPR program in Boston. So I was you know, in a studio very far removed from, from everything. But that fall of 2001, uh, when we would be calling out, I'd be calling satellite phones in Afghanistan to get journalists there on the program to give us a, a debrief at the top of the show, what was going on, what had happened that day. And uh, I, you know, I felt sitting in that control room that I, I needed to do more to report on the story of, you know, really our generation. Uh, you know, it was as a journalist, as an American, it was, you know, the, the biggest event in, in our lifetime. And that drove me to want to get out there and, and see it and tell the story and, uh, you know, eventually got there. It wasn't until 2007 that I really started getting out into into some of those places. But, um, yeah, I, I was not really prepared for some of the, the aspects and the realization that, okay, I'm out here reporting on a lot of horrible things, seeing a lot of horrible things, hearing a lot of horrible things, and certainly had no mental health sort of training or preparation ahead of time. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it was something that, that again, you just, I, you know, I maybe others really thought about it beforehand, but I'm not sure a lot of us did. I think you're thinking about doing the job you're there, you know, you have 
a mission, a purpose. You're there to observe, tell a story, uh, and you're not really thinking about, well, you know, how is this going to impact me or change me over time uh, as, as I'm doing this work? So uh, that was certainly, you know, kind of a surprise to me over the years that I spent uh, in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Congo, you know, down the list. And, um, you know, again, took took some time to, to realize that, you know, civilians do experience things as well. And uh, it just hasn't been a lot of conversation about it. Um, you know, you know, as well as anyone, the challenges that veterans face and the difficulties of still trying to get awareness and care and resources into that community that, you know, most people see and understand the, the toll on, on veterans that the last 20 years have taken. Uh, but certainly, you know, you look at how many civilians, how many diplomats, how many humanitarian workers, how many journalists, even how many contractors, uh, have, you know, spent time downrange in these places. And uh, some had some incredibly traumatic experiences. And there's really, you know, there's nothing when you come back. There's no VA for civilians who, who work in these places. So, uh, you know, that was sort of a big realization for me and a big part of, you know, my experiences and then ultimately writing the book and trying to get to a place of raising awareness and, and, you know, trying to build bridges also between the, the veteran and military and civilian communities and, uh, you know, help, help try to support each other. Definitely. And uh, you alluded to it there that a lot of people don't realize the divide to what you guys go through or any civilian that's on the battlefield. In my opening, you see about the 22 a day of the veterans that are uh, 22 that are reported a day is probably mm -hmm. close 44 to 50, but you don't see the numbers of a journalist or the numbers of diplomats or numbers of even a USA personnel who were over there who actually are doing the same things. You don't see those numbers because it's not a number people want to say, or, or it's not reported that, Oh, he was a journalist or she was a journalist and they killed themselves. You're not going to hear that at all. It's not something that's broadcast. Well, and, and fortunately, at least it doesn't seem like it's happening in in significant numbers. So that that's the you know the the good news piece of it is that um, you know I'm I'm not aware of large numbers of it. I know a lot of people that are struggling with it uh, who are are you know struggling with self medication or just living with some type of chronic PTSD or things like that. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people in that community, what they do is they just, they don't leave that community, right? I mean, you stay immersed in it so that you never, uh, sort of experience that, that withdrawal and that period of, of processing and, and trying to readjust to, um, you know, a, you know, normal life isn't the right term because, you know, the, the, there is no, <laughs> not much of not much of a normal, but um, you, you know, I mean, coming back to like for me, come, moving from Afghanistan back to Washington D.C. was way more of a shock than uh, than I was prepared for. Um, but but yeah, you know, to your point, I mean, it, I think that's why it's been a challenge to raise awareness for for the civilians uh, because there aren't those statistics. It isn't as visible. Uh, it is. It hasn't reached sort of a, a crisis level that that you know, people have no choice but to pay attention to it. But I look at it as more of a simmering problem uh, and that, you know, there are a lot of people out there that, um, 
you know, are, are dealing with things, are struggling to process a lot of things that, uh, that they saw and heard and experienced. And, uh, um, like I say, you know, the civilian world, it's, it's just tough to get attention to it. And, you know, it's up to individual organizations to, to do things about it, you know, news organizations, state department, what have you. And, uh, I just don't think we've reached a tipping point of, of awareness and, and effort around it yet. Definitely. And, and I, while you were there, you were there 12 to 14 and uh, mm-hmm. Sergeant Major Griffin was killed in a suicide uh, bombing attack uh, as they did a patrol. Uh, Florence Griff, Flo Griffin got the Medal of Honor for this incident, but there was three military and one civilian who were killed in that incident. The three military got a lot of news and the U.S. aid worker uh, diplomat did not get a lot of news, but he was also killed doing a, a job that was much needed in that area. So that's, that's another angle of the two that you don't see a lot of that because it's more of the we want to see what numbers of soldiers died or not to see or civilians on the battlefield, not any of you guys. Yeah. And, and to that point, I mean, certainly there are, you know, a lot of people that were under the broad term of contractor who, uh, who were killed and injured over there. And, you know, look, as a journalist, I reported on uh, military casualties, uh, you know, killed, killed and wounded when I was over there. And, we didn't even often get the information sometimes about contractors when we would get the information from, you know, NATO or, or the U S command there, uh, you know, they would only report sometimes the, the military. So, uh, and, and then of course the other part, the, you know, the Afghan civilians who were working with, with U S forces, um, you know, they, we generally didn't hear about them. Uh, you know, there was one, pretty high profile incident in 2013 when I was there, there was a young um, foreign service officer um, who was working at the embassy in Kabul. And she was on a, uh, it was a, there's a mission. I, I'm trying to remember which uh, it might've been Uro's gun. I'm trying to remember it was down, you know, towards Southeast. And she was with, I think a provincial reconstruction team uh, or army civil affairs. And they were on a human mission i think delivering some books to a school or something like that and uh uh, basically uh there was a car bomb attack and she was killed and that was yeah i mean that was incredibly rare fortunately in in afghanistan i mean there were very few state department personnel uh killed but that was one of those moments that did kind of put it on the radar screen that hey you know there are a lot of people out there that are risking their lives for this mission. Uh, and that, um, you know, that also had a, a you know, pretty big effect on the civilian community. there, really reflecting on, okay, what, what is the mission? Uh, what's going on here? Was that a necessary operation that they were on? Uh, and, you know, raised a lot of difficult questions. And um, uh, again, that was one that, you know, she was a very committed public servant, uh, you know, very, bright young person, great future ahead of her and really believed in what she was doing. And, uh, unfortunately, you know, paid the ultimate price. Exactly. And like you said, it's we hardly ever heard of it. And even today I was wounded. It was a contractor wounded, not 50 meters from me. He got trapped mm-hmm. on his neck. My medic actually helped him, but you never seen that stat. You've seen just me or the other soldiers that were hit that day. So those are the numbers that would get sent up. So that I'm sure, all the things you've seen in the nearly two decades of covering uh, as a war correspondent, when did you start to notice some changes in your mind that 
maybe I need to start writing things down to maybe get this stuff out and maybe talk about it. Yeah, it, you know, something that I I was sort of observing the impacts as as I was going. Um, it it really after it's probably in my, my second time. Um, you know, so I spent about five years based in D.C. and I would do short trips into places. So I'd do an embed for you know a few weeks or something like that, and then come back. And so in 2009, uh, it was October 2009, I was doing an embed in uh, uh, Host Province and Pactia. And, uh, you know, there wasn't any, uh, you know, hardcore action that went on, but pretty much every base where I was during that embed, there was, there was incoming at some point. And so, you know, there was a boom and a run to the bunkers. Uh, and that was, I remember on that, trip um that started to kind of pierce the bubble because there, you know there was a i think a phenomenon a lot of journalists had in embeds that you felt kind of protected and safe and in a bubble you know you're surrounded by the best forces in the world and there is this kind of sense that they're going to protect you and you know you're riding around in this giant mrap and things like that uh so so i think it was easy sometimes to to get a little uh a little complacent and that embed, uh, there was one time I was at uh, Salerno in, in Host, and I was sitting at the, uh, the Afghan-run bazaar on the base. And so there were a couple of U.S. soldiers and I were sipping tea with some of the Afghans. Just all of a sudden, there was a whistling sound and a boom. And we looked over, and it was you know, about 50, 75 yards away. And uh, so you know, after we ran to the bunkers and came out, and looked at what happened, uh, an incoming rocket, uh, hit a tree and detonated above a tent that had seven soldiers sitting inside of it. And so it sprayed shrapnel all over the tent. And I actually write about that in, in my book. I sort of describe it as that scene in Pulp Fiction, uh, when the, the kid comes running out of the bathroom and unloads his pistol at, uh, at, uh, Jules and Vince and doesn't hit them. Right. And you see the bullet holes in the wall behind them. And they just kind of look and it's like, how, how did we not get hit? That was kind of what happened in that tent. There was shrapnel damage all over the tent. Computer monitors were, were shattered. Lights were shattered. You could see, you know, holes in the floor. One of the seven people in there got a small piece of, of shrapnel in the leg and walked off to get it treated. But if that tree hadn't been there, in all likelihood, the rocket would have landed in or near the tent and done catastrophic damage. And so that moment really kind of galvanized to me just the the nature of it, the the you know the sort of game of inches, the the luck um, that happens, and that any moment, you know, if you're in theater doesn't matter if you're on a big base or out on a patrol. There is a potential for something to happen at any time. And so your mindset is, is geared that way at that point. And so you realize, you know, your idol is dialed up. You're always thinking about, you know, the, the potential. And so when I came home from that embed, I definitely uh, spent a little more time kind of processing that. And, um, you know, each time I went down range and then eventually moved there, you know, I realized that, uh, you know, I was 
in that that high threat mindset. And then, you know, the other side of that was I was constantly reporting on horrible things. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes going to villages and hospitals and, and seeing, you know, the after effects, interviewing people who had their lives devastated by, by an attack or something of that nature. Uh, and, you know, you're reporting that you're doing a job, you're communicating it back to, to the public, informing people and hoping that leads to, to positive change, but you still have to put that somewhere. And that was, you know, I could feel myself changing. I could feel myself being different around people when I came home uh, and finding it harder to talk to friends and family and people who, who couldn't relate to that. And it's, you know, the same thing you hear in the veterans community, right? Just, you know, people come home and they'll talk to their, their battle buddies, but anyone who, who wasn't there, didn't see it, didn't experience it, you know, you don't you don't open up about that. You, you know, you keep yourself isolated. And, uh, you know, the story I, I mentioned in the book, how I, it made me understand my grandfather. Uh, he served in the Navy in World War II, and he was on a munitions ship in the Pacific. And so growing up, uh, I always wanted him to tell stories about being in the Navy in World War II. And he, he, he wouldn't. He had a couple of sort of fake joke stories that he would tell to kind of, you know, distract the, distract you basically. Like the one I always remember is he talked about how on the ship every morning he'd wake up and he'd take his socks and he'd throw them up to the ceiling. And if they stuck to the ceiling, he'd change them and put on a new pair. If they didn't, he'd wear the same pair again. Yeah. And so he had stories like that, that he'd tell to kind of, you know, kind of diffuse the thing and distract you from wanting to ask deeper, tougher questions. And, um, you know, my, my whole life, I mean, you know, I was lucky he lived uh, in, into my 40s, but never had a conversation with him in any depth about what he experienced um, in World War II. And as I started to notice myself changing from spending more time downrange and around these kinds of, uh, of situations, I, I started to understand him and understand his headspace and how, you know, you don't want to share a lot of this stuff with people. And, you know, people are well-intentioned when they'll say, oh, wow, you were just in Afghanistan. You know, what was it like? Was it dangerous? Were you scared? And, you know, again, people, people mean well with these questions, but I don't think they're ever really prepared for what the real answer would be if you were to, to tell them that. Um, so again, you know, you kind of give them like, well, you know, people like, what was it like in Kabul? I'll say it was dusty. Uh, you know, something, something kind of lighthearted to, to, you know, give, give an answer and then hopefully not, uh, you know, get, get a follow-up question. Um, and so that, you know, this thing when I, um, you know, really started after I got back, you know, so the end of 2014, I got back and I, I just had a lot of time to process stuff. And, you know, it took me years to really understand how everything affected me, um, just where I was in terms of headspace and how I related to other people and how I related to the world. And, uh, you know, I ended up getting into, you know, I did all the typical bad life choices, you know, I mean, you know, gambling, got into a relationship with the wrong person, um, you know, all that stuff. You know, meanwhile, so I'm showing up to work. I mean, you know, I'd look on the surface 
functional professional, uh, you know, for a while I worked for, for the department of defense inspector general's office. So I had, you know, a high level important government job and seemed like, I, you know, again, I was showing up every day, but when I wasn't in the office, um, you know, my head was not in good places and, uh, you know, got to a point where it was, uh, it was getting really dark. And so the, you know, the, finally the decision was, okay, uh, I write this book, uh, cause this, this is my way to, to claw back out and to process things. And then ultimately to, to start this conversation and to say, you know, Hey, there, there are other people out there that, um, are affected by this and the organizations that are sending journalists, aid workers, diplomats overseas aren't focusing on this and they're not aware, they're not preparing people for what they're going to encounter. Uh, they're certainly not teaching people healthy coping skills. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the self-medication that went on uh, during my time in Cobham, you know, you, people have heard all the stories about crazy parties and things like that. It was absolutely true. And, and the drugstores in Kabul sold Valium and Xanax and Ativan over the counter. Um, so, you know, we, we did what we needed to do to get through the day and to, you know, go to sleep after a long day of covering some horrible piece of news. But, um, you know, that's no way to function long term. Definitely. I think everything you just described is what most uh, veterans also go through that same cycle. They come home, if they don't have someone that's stable in their lives, they, mm-hmm. they make that wrong choice or wrong choices in, in relationships. They find a vice or vices, and then they keep trying to chase that high that they had over there, but it'll never come back. You can't get that. High. It's like the, how they describe a heroin addict. Once you get that first hit, you can never find it. You're always chasing it after. But the adrenaline rush from combat is a lot harder to get to receive doing anything else that's safe or we're not as uh, hostile, I guess. So they can continuously chase in that. And, and I think it's the same thing. You went through that same roller coaster and I'm, you're still on the roller coaster. Not just that you're doing a lot better with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. I don't think, uh, I, you know, I don't think you ever really get off it once, once you've gotten on it, uh, you just, you know, you, you, you learn how to, how to ride it better. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, to continuing work. I mean, you know, the, the arc of, of, you know, my book, it's sort of, it, you know, you know, it's a memoir. So it starts my initial getting into doing overseas reporting and getting in over my head. And I, you know, I write very candidly about being, uh, you know, a bit of an idiot at times and um, not really appreciating some of the danger, not really appreciating some of the, the local uh, customs and nuances and things like that that I had to deal with. Uh, and, you know, grew over time, became, uh, you know, wiser um, and more respectful of of the job of the people that I was dealing with. Uh, and then, you know, the coming back and, and sort of the, the long, slow unraveling. Uh, and then, you know, I, you know, make no, you know, there's no Hollywood ending yet. You know, there's no perfect, everything's fine, life's great kind of thing. It's okay. Got through the worst of it. Um, sharing the story, which is the next step of trying to, to get it out there, empower other people to, you know, raise their hand and say, hey, you know what? I actually experienced a lot of that too. And I could actually use someone to talk to or some help. 
so, you know, it's one of those things. It's you got to get the story out there and start making it a normal thing for, for people to talk about it. You know, the usual things, you know, take away the stigma, right? That's, you know, one of the, one of the big things is it's okay to, to ask for help. It's okay to, to say that, that you're not having a good day. Um, so that's, you know, that's where sort of things are now is really, um, trying to raise that awareness, have that conversation and then look at what, what's out there in terms of current resources and what can we potentially do to, to put more resources at this and, and build more awareness. Um, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm doing, uh, cause my, you know, obviously as a journalist, my book is journalism focus. I mean, it's telling the story of my journalism experiences downrange. Uh, so I'm speaking to journalism students and journalism schools. And again, trying to r- raise awareness on the front end for people saying, hey, if, you know, if you're going to go down this road, this is an important thing. And we need people willing to go to these places and cover these stories. But here's some of what you're going to be in for. Um, here are mistakes that, that I made and other people I know made, and here's the wisdom I can impart, but we still need to have more of a conversation about what can we do to, to empower people, um, and give them, you know, a little bit more mental safety. Uh, you know, as a journalist, I went through the hostile environment training courses, which of course are all about how to try to recognize potential physical threats, you know, see that you're about to walk into a minefield or if you're in a minefield, how do you get out of it? How do you identify hostile checkpoints? How do you talk your way through a checkpoint? Um, You know, things like that. And then obviously the traumatic first aid, if something does go wrong. Uh, But in those courses, there was never any discussion about the psychological or emotional aspects of it. And I didn't think about it at the time, um, but now I realize, you know, that stuff needs to be part of it. Um, Because it's like, okay, here's how you get through an incident. And then on the back end, here are some of the things that you need to do to come down from that and process that and realize that, um, you know, it's it's sticking with you. Um, You know, I actually, it was was interesting. I was just having a, a text conversation with a friend of mine who was in Kabul uh, with me in 2014. And we were together on the night of, of January 17th when uh, there was an attack on a Lebanese restaurant in Kabul where a lot of the international community used to hang out. And I, I had had dinner there the week before. Um, and that night, uh, the Taliban attacked the restaurant, killed 21 people, including a number of, of UN people, uh, American University in uh, Afghanistan people. I mean, there were, you know, Western civilians that were friends of ours that were, that were killed in that. And, uh, my friend and I today, we're, we're just talking about how we can both still hear the gunfire from that night. Cause we were actually a couple blocks away when the attack happened and we heard the gunfire and it wasn't until later that we realized what was happening at the sound of that gunfire. Um, and, you know, nine years later, that sound is still as vivid in my mind as it was the day it happened. Yeah, I'm sure the sounds of that, the smells that you had from any uh, battles that you were in, the area or, or even being by villages, uh, seeing what the people were looking like and smelling what they smelled, lived, lived in, that, that kind of sticks with you, too. And that mm-hmm. also hurts the, the mindset a little bit as well. You 
while you're there, you compartmentalize it. Like you said, you kind of unpacked it when you got home. Uh, un- unknowingly, you unpacked it, and, and <laughs> now you've packed it into the, the book of passports. And uh, I think that's a great way to do it. Uh, one of the <laughs> listeners uh, said he still does the sock trick. He still uses it. He's a former EOD guy, and that doesn't surprise me. And my brother, he said it would be a good way to see if underwear needed to change. So they they find humor in your, your granddad's story as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, look, he, uh, you know, he, he he knew what he was doing. He, um, <laughs> you know, he he could make people laugh, and that again, that's the you know the easiest way to to diffuse sort of a you know potentially emotional situation like that of of asking a deep question. It's like, oh, here, let me again, let me let me throw you a, a curveball, and then you'll forget that you were asking about it. Exactly. Uh, when you were talking about the, the things that you went through as a journalist, I thought back to a movie that came out called The Hornet's Nest uh, about uh, No Slack and a couple other units that were in Afghanistan at the time, uh, 2010-11 period. And uh, it was written, uh, it was, the movie was based off of Carlos and Mike Betcher's time there together as war correspondents, father and son, out together. Mm-hmm. And in the show, you see them, you can see them both train, the dad especially. You've seen him drinks now he's out there with his son. We wanted to see what dad did for a living and try to learn it. And now he's worried when they get separated, he's, you can see him just like he crumbles. And that, that became his last time over and his son carried the torch from there. Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, that's, you know, sort of relates back to, to that conversation about um, being able to relate to other people um, and, you know, how you, uh, you end up, kind of isolated um in fact i don't i don't know if you remember the uh there was the program uh proper exit uh it was a, it was a charity that that ran a program for uh people who basically were evacuated out of iraq and afghanistan and they would fly them back in and give them kind of a ceremony and allow them to sort of leave the country as you know, the unit would have left, uh, under, under other circumstances. So, uh, there's one time in Kabul, I was covering one of those. So there were four, uh, individuals. I'm trying to remember, I think it was a couple, I forget what it was two or three army and at least one Marine. But, um, so they had all had, uh, injuries that they had to get evacuated out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so they came back and they were talking to some troops in, uh, in Kabul and I just, you know, remember one of them saying, he's like, I, you know, I thought when I got home um, that the best way to handle things was to try to get as much distance from it as possible and to not think about it, not talk to people, not stay in touch with people from his unit, all that. Uh, and he talked about how that was just the, the worst thing he could have possibly done is to isolate himself and and not at least stay in touch with people from his unit and all that and again he uh you know fortunately figured it out and uh you know was able to stick around and but that was again a big part of his message was that notion of you know stay connected um you know stay engaged at least with that core group of people and i think again in my experience that was what was difficult because when I got back, there were a few people in DC who I had known in Kabul. And so I had a little bit of, of a group, you know, I use the term tribe a lot in the book. So, uh, you know, I had a few members of the, the tribe that were, were in DC that kind of helped me initially not feel 
you know, completely out of it and, and isolated. And so people that, you know, I could talk to, and, and the thing that's interesting in reflecting on that is I realized like we actually never really talked about any of the serious stuff. You know, we didn't talk about like, you know, that night and how did you feel and what did you think? And it was just knowing that, okay, we'd been in it together. So these are safe people to be around and I can be myself. And if I do have a, a moment of, of, you know, a mild freak out or something like that, these people aren't going to judge me. I don't have to explain it. You know, we all, we all understand but we still never really did deeply discuss like, Hey, you know, how did you feel after that day when our friend got killed? Um, and you know, I, I don't, I, I look back and I think, you know, it, it is sort of an interesting thing that we did, you know, we would drink together and joke and all that and, and, and just sort of try to keep things light. But uh, there were only one or two people that I ever really had those deep, you know, holy crap discussions with. Um, and again, I think that's just something that, that is necessary and, and important to be able to feel that, the, you know, there is someone that you can, you can talk to in those moments and, and just say, Hey, you know, remember that time when this thing happened? Um, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about that. Right. We had a, when I was in uh, 2010, 11 in Kandahar, I get there and I came from Korea and met my unit there. Campbell to Korea, uh, Korea, Campbell to Afghanistan, Kandahar, mm. so KKK. <laughs> uh, and uh, I get in the tent and there's a young staff sergeant limping. I say, damn, Sergeant, what's wrong with you? Heard you hurt? Can't even walk straight. And he walked by and another young soldier said, hey, Sergeant, he only has one leg. I said, what? I said, he's still here. I said, no, he came back. He, in 2007, he lost his leg in the same region. Stayed in the military. Uh, he was a staff sergeant at the time, staff sergeant Greg Robinson. And he came back to the very same area where he lost his leg to serve again. And he stayed. He, he just retired now as a master sergeant. So, so he stayed in for a long time to stay with his, like you said, the tribe and, and stay mm-hmm. with that that knowing stuff. And now he's, he's going to be a deputy in, in Illinois. So. It's, it's weird. Uh, everything you're saying is clicking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Again. And, and that's why, you know, to me, it was, it was kind of important to, to write about this because, um, you know, I think sometimes, you know, there, there is a, a civil military divide and, you know, the, the, a lot of people in this country just don't understand and, and can't relate, uh, can't possibly understand what service members have, have gone through and experienced, but there are a lot of civilians who do have, you know, quite a bit of shared experience and, you know, it's not the same. I mean, we weren't, you know, pulling triggers and dealing with, you know, a lot of those aspects, but we're still in the, in the same space confronting a lot of the same questions about, you know, what's going on here. Is this making a difference? Is this the right use of American, you know, human beings and and taxpayer money um in these missions uh and so i I think it is important to to you know kind of bridge those communities and again why i'm hoping to do you know more speaking with with veterans communities say hey you know we we do understand each other and we can you know build kind of a bigger tent and and see how that you know we can reinforce each other's 
you know, needs and support and things like that. So, um, you know, that was, again, to me, one of the important things about telling this story is that, uh, yeah, you know, civilians do go through a lot. And, um, you know, with journalists, the other thing I realize is the incentives are, are much more against journalists trying to get help. You know, because if you think about it, it's, it's, you know, it's an incredibly competitive business. So if you're a foreign correspondent, you're in, you know, one of not a lot of slots doing that work. And so you want to stay in that field doing that work. So if you're in Ukraine right now reporting on the conflict uh, and you're starting to struggle, are you going to tap out and say, hey, I need a, a mental health break, send someone else in for a couple of weeks? Or are you going to go, no, I'm not going to do that because the big break in the story could happen in those two weeks. And I don't want my replacement to get the story. And oh, by the way, I don't want my bosses and my editors to say, oh, this person's having a hard time. We have to take him out of the field completely and, you know, put him through a process before we, we let him go back. So, you know, you sort of realize it's like, yeah, when, when you're in it, you're going to do everything you can to stay in it. Uh, and you know, you don't want to start confronting this stuff until, until you're out. So that's one of the things I'm, I'm looking at is how do I get friends and, and colleagues who are still in this, um, to do more about their, their mental health, you know, while they're going along and how do you create a situation where there isn't a stigma and that news organizations don't punish people for, for, saying they need a, a mental health break or say, well, now I'm worried about this person. I don't want to send them back in. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's a tough dynamic to, to look at. And how do you, how do you get people to, um, to really, you know, prioritize them themselves sometimes when those, you know, competitive career juices are flowing and you're feeling like, again, like I've, you know, I've got to be here for this story. I mean, I saw I saw it in Libya in particular during the civil war in 2011. I saw a number of journalists who were grinding themselves into the ground. I mean, they were just fried, but they didn't want to leave because what happens if Gaddafi gets captured while I'm on break in in Cyprus? Um, and you know, so so that's a real part of it. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, that is a tough dynamic in, in the news business where you do have that, that competition and that sense that I, you know, I want to get the story. I want to be the one who's there when the big thing happens. Uh, and so your inclination is to, to push yourself beyond what, uh, what's reasonable. Definitely. And that's, I think in almost every profession, you don't want to take that knee and then and then be the one that's not there when something happens. You, know, you can go from sports to military to journalism, anywhere, and you don't want to be that guy or gal who said, I'm raising my hand, I'm take a break, and then miss out on this big deal. Where that yeah. big deal could just be you taking that break and be coming back fresh, especially about the time of the Libyan conflict. I'm sure a lot of those over there were jumping between the, the three sectors at that point. You had Afghanistan, Iraq, you had the Arab Spring going on all throughout the Middle East there. So they're probably hitting everything, and then they wound up at Libya right for the height of it. And, and their minds are probably just not in the game. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, there were, unfortunately, um, you know, some journalists who, who pushed it in, in Libya and, and unfortunately didn't come back. There were some who pushed it and got lucky. 
you know, that, that is the, the nature of the business. That was sort of a weird realization for me, actually, is when I, when I really got into it, I, I, I found that I was on the, I guess you could say the risk averse end of the spectrum. Um, you, you know, you realize your threshold for, for danger and like, okay, am I going to get in this car with this strange person and go off down this road that everyone is saying is, is, you know, really dangerous in hope that I get to the other end and get the story? Or am I going to say that seems a little extreme for what's not a guaranteed story? And uh, so, uh, you know, there, there's definitely like like everything, you know, there's a spectrum in, in journalism. There are people who, to me, were just absolute, you know, you know, cowboy types who would just go after everything and, and did want the most dangerous, the the most, um, you know, outrageous things and did want the camera on them with bullets flying and things blowing up behind them. And so there's, you know, I mean, that's one of the things I'm very candid about in the book, right? There's a lot of ego. So there's no question. Let's not pretend that there aren't, you know, journalists out there who are, are focusing, you know, more on themselves than the story and the people they're covering. But that's, you know, by no means all of them or the majority for that matter. And most of us were kind of in the middle where we're willing to take a certain amount of risk because we believe we're in telling important stories that if we're not there, um, no, you know, several things can happen. I mean, obviously, you know, people aren't aware, so they're not pushing on government to make the right decisions or pushing on leaders to, to change course. But, um, one one of the things I write about, you mentioned the Arab Spring. So I, I was actually in Bahrain for um, uh, about a week during the Arab Spring. And, you know, Egypt and Libya were the really big Arab Spring stories. Bahrain was a little bit under the radar, but I was there when things went really sideways and the government uh, cracked down on protesters and there were clashes and there was a lot of crazy stuff going on that I, I wasn't expecting when I got there. Um, but, the, you know, I spent one day at a hospital there where people were coming in covered in, you know, bird shot and strange wounds. And uh, they were all saying that they were out in their village and, and masked forces came in and started shooting at them and firing tear gas and all this stuff. And just really chaotic and, and, and pretty hairy stuff that was going on. And so, you know, I was there, I was witnessing it, I was reporting it. And a couple months later, I was back in DC and I got invited to a dinner that was hosted by a public relations firm that was doing lobbying on behalf of the, the government of Bahrain. Wow. So they had brought in, uh, I think it's like five members of, of uh, Bahrain's parliament. And so it was them and two other journalists and myself. And so we're in this nice club in DC and these people are talking about it. And one of the members of parliament was talking about how crazy it was in Bahrain. He said, you, you know, you can't understand what it was like. There were protesters running around with guns. These people were armed and supported by Iran. They were, you know, they, all this stuff. I mean, just spinning this tale about these armed protesters and how they were using, they had taken over hospitals and were using them as operations centers where they were stashing weapons and planning protests and, and assaults against the government from these hospitals. And so I'm sitting listening to this guy 
And at the end of the dinner, uh, I go up to him and I said, you know, it was interesting listening to you describing what was going on. And I said, when I was in Bahrain, when all of this was happening, I didn't see any protesters with guns. I didn't see any hospitals that were turned into militarized operation centers. In fact, I saw the opposite. And the guy just froze. He had no idea that there was someone in the room who had been there and was a witness to what was going on and saw the government and mysterious pro-government forces cracking down on largely unarmed demonstrators. Certainly, I never saw guns in the hands of demonstrators. I mean, certainly threw rocks and things like that. Um, But so, you know, I I called this guy out. And uh, again, you know, he just kind of froze and backpedaled and it just made me realize that they had spent several days going around Washington, telling members of Congress, telling the State Department, telling people in the administration that, you know, these Iranian backed thugs were out on the street with guns and trying to take down the government, which is completely untrue. And fortunately, I and some others were there to witness it and to be able to provide a factual record for it. But you think about how many things go on around the world that aren't witnessed, where people with interests can then say, this is what happened. This is what's going on. You know, you look at Russia and their ability to control information and make up narratives when people aren't there to witness or they're just used to hearing government propaganda and accepting it as fact. Uh, So that, that is, you know, to me, again, an important thing about why you know, journalists are, are necessary in these places because you do need, you know, as you say, you need people there calling balls and strikes. And, um, (laughs) and, uh, and so, um, you know, back to sort of the point is that, you know, so you're willing to take certain amount of risks to try to do truth telling, hold people accountable and make sure that folks aren't coming through Washington on public relations tours making things up and there's no one there to, to, to call them out on it. Exactly. And then we wind up giving a suitcase full of money for no reason to them to help them re- rebuild things that they destroyed themselves. Yeah. Any number of things like that. Yes. So Sean, we talked a lot, a lot of things. I want to put you on the spot here. You're, you get to sit at, or, at an orientation of new journalists, aspiring journalists. And you get to tell them three tips how to be a great journalist and what they're getting into if they go, they want the international side of it. All right. Three. Huh? Okay. So, um, all right. I mean, number one is, is something that, that I do say to people is learn how to write. Uh, I mean, it, it is the most important skill in journalism and I've, you know, had to at times coach or mentor or edit people who, hadn't learned writing well and you lose a lot of time and effort with that when people, you know, should be able to focus on, on the substance. So, you know, basic rule number one, get your writing skills down, nail them, um, and not have that be a, be an issue. Um, I think, you know, number two is kind of a, a a check yourself kind of thing. Like ask yourself, like what, why, why are you in this? what do you want to accomplish? What do you think the mission is? Um, Because yes, it is, it is exciting. 
and certainly, especially foreign reporting in you know non-conflict zones, um, you know, is a fantastic job. I mean, you know, getting to run around different places and see things, uh, it's it's an incredible experience. And even within it, like I, I right, I had one of the most amazing moments of my life in the Congo, riding on top of a a, uh, a tank with Indian peacekeepers riding off into the jungle in the night with a glowing volcano in the distance. And it was just one of the most epic moments of just this is so remote. It's so, you know, no one else in the world, you know, had that experience at that moment kind of thing. So, uh, you know, it it is incredibly seductive. But if you're going into it, you're going into it as a public servant. You're doing it to inform people. You're doing it to ultimately help people on the ground. You know, when you're walking through a village in Pakistan that's smoldering because it was attacked in a, in a case of religious violence, you have an obligation to those people to tell their story, to capture their pain in a responsible way to not, you know, traumatize them by trying to, you know, hype the story or anything like that. But you, you know, you have a responsibility to these people to take in their pain, communicate it to the world, and make people aware of what's happened so that hopefully someone takes action so it doesn't happen again. You know, that's that's the obligation of the craft. So if, if you're not, you know, in it for those ultimately, you know, altruistic reasons that you're you're there to to provide witness, to be there to hold people accountable um and that yes you know you can have fun and adventure and and make the most of it but you know you're you're a public servant first so make sure you're in it for the right reason uh and and number three yeah i would say you know if you are thinking about especially the conflict route um understand again what what you're what you're getting into and that, um, you know, even the best person at compartmentalizing, uh, you know, can't, can't keep it all out. And, you know, you've got to be prepared for the fact that you are going to see the absolute worst of what human beings do and do to each other. And it's going to be hard to process and it will you know, for me, it changed my view of, of the world and, and people. And I'm, you know, I'm still trying to be less cynical and pessimistic. Um, but you know, it's, it's pretty hard when you see, you know, some of the, 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 the awful things that people will do to other people. Um, so, you know, again, you know, be, be prepared for that and think about how are you going to, how are you going to process that? How are you going to live with that uh, going forward? And, you know, let's hope that your news organization or whoever you're working for uh, is going to take some responsibility for that and provide some resources and, and make sure you're okay along the way. Outstanding. Great tips right there. And we started the conversation talking about passport stamps, searching the world for uh, searching the world for a war to call home. By Sean Carberry, which came out just less than a month ago, August fifteenth. Tell tell the audience where they can get that book and maybe read up on it and send you questions. Yeah, so it's you know the 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 usual online uh, places. So it's Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, uh, my 
website for the book is passport-stamps.com. Uh, and so on that, there are links to a few different places you can buy it. It's, it's not in, not really in many stores. I do know there's a stack of autographed copies at the Twig in San Antonio, Texas, because uh, I was there a couple weeks ago and did a, did a book event. So sign some books. There's some there. Um, there's some in the bookstore near me in, uh, in D.C. But, uh, yeah, you know, available online, uh, you know, regular hard, hard book or, you know, well, paperback, but um, uh, ebook as well. And eventually I'm going to lock myself in a closet and record the uh, audio book. So that's, <laughs> that's coming eventually. It's just uh, been, been hard to carve out the time to, to sit and do that. But um, yeah. And I also have a, a Substack website where I write, I try to do weekly essays about what's going on in, in, you know, foreign policy, foreign affairs, and tie together some of my reporting experience. And so weave in some of my, my stories and places and, uh, and talk about that. And that's actually, that's passportstamps.net is the, uh, the sub stack. And I also have a lot of stuff. So when I wrote the book, it was the first draft was about two and a half times the length of a book. So I had a lot of stuff that I had to cut out and go through a process of deciding, okay, I think this is a really cool little story, but is the reader really going to suffer if that's not in the final, final version? So Lots of material that I've been gradually trickling out on the uh, the Substack site, so that uh, uh, some of the things that didn't didn't make the final version are still there. So I'm able to at least use all the material that uh, that I sat down and wrote. Outstanding, Sean. This has been a great conversation. We're running low on time right now, Russia, but we are running low on our stream time. This has been awesome, um, listeners. The website is going across the bottom right now, and it will be in the show notes when the when it gets published, and then when the uh, audio comes out, it'll be about the end of November. This is going to be live on YouTube from now on. Again, Sean, thank you very much for coming on and agreeing to hang out with us for this hour here uh, with us here in Tennessee and you up there in the nation's capital. This has been awesome. Thanks, Rich, and keep doing what you're doing. It's really important. Thank you. Have a good night. Good night. This message is from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Did you serve in the military? If so, you can obtain a free lifetime pass to more than 2,000 federal recreation sites. These sites are located across more than 400 million acres of public lands, including national parks, wildlife refuges, and forests. The lands host activities to fit any lifestyle, hiking, biking, fishing, camping, and much more. Gold Star families are also eligible for these free lifetime passes. Plus, they cover entrance fees for a driver and all passengers in a car, or up to three additional adults at sites that charge per person. Obtaining one is easy. Just go to the National Park Service website, nps.gov, or the National Park Service app. Thanks for checking this out and being a part of the Misfit Nation. Don't forget to visit our website at themisfitnation.com. That's themisfitnation.com. Check out all of our past episodes and get some of that great Misfit Nation gear. As always, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling, because we are Misfit Nation. Misfit Nation.